0: Good morning. Let's begin by reading the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, that no man should say that you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. Pray with me. Dear Father, the exhortation that Paul presents to the Corinthians in this passage is as relevant to us today as it has ever been. Our participation in the advancement of the word of life is at issue here. So we ask that you would make us eager to receive what you have so graciously given to us through your servant, Paul, and we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. We've talked a lot about the importance of Christian unity in recent weeks and months, and that exhortation is going to be front and center again this morning. The reason the matter of unity in the body of Christ keeps coming up as we work through different books and passages of the Bible is because it's exceedingly important to God. And when God repeats himself, we're supposed to pay extra attention, not less attention. (laughs) What's at stake here is truly nothing less than the church's witness for Christ in the world. We saw in the first nine verses of this letter in our time last week that Paul starts the letter by very clearly declaring that those to whom he is writing are saints, holy ones. They are those who have already been sanctified, made holy, set apart to God in Christ Jesus, purely by the grace of God. That same redeeming grace, according to Paul, that now assures them that God will confirm them to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is is careful to clarify that that powerful affirmation and assurance, along with everything else that he says in these letters, apply not only to the saints in Corinth, but to all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nine times in those first nine verses, Paul refers to Jesus as Christ. Six times he refers to him as Lord. And five times in those verses, he puts all three of those together, calling him our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, if you listen through those first nine verses with your ears rather than reading them with your eyes, it's impossible not to be struck by that repetition. And it is not pointless repetition. It is strategic repetition. When God repeats Himself through the writers of His Word, we're supposed to pay attention. Now, in verse 10, having firmly established the identity, the calling, the position, and the destiny of His readers, of those to whom He's writing this letter, and having very firmly established who is the cause of that redeemed identity, calling, position, and destiny, Paul begins the very long list of exhortations, rebukes, and instructions that are found in the rest of this letter by saying in verse 10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. The constant declaration in the New Testament is that Jesus is the Christ. And that means that He is the long-promised Son of God and King of Kings foretold by the Old Testament prophets across dozens of generations. If you want a marvelous snapshot of what, what it means that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed King and Son of God, spend some time in Psalm 2. Psalm 2. And if you want a, a a beautiful declaration of the promise that that same exalted servant of God is also the one and only savior of mankind, spend some time in Isaiah 52 verse 13 through 53 verse 12. Those aren't the only passages to go to get those those understandings, but but those are both very powerful. I point all that out to make sure that we get how loaded the title Christ is. The word Lord, as it is continually applied to Jesus in the New Testament, means Master, Ruler, and God. It means that Jesus is the Sovereign over His entire creation. To call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ means that we proclaim Jesus, we trust in Jesus as the Son of God and Lord of all creation, whose incarnation and sinless life and atoning death and glorious resurrection were promised long before He came to earth from heaven and fulfilled those many prophecies. To call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ is to confess who He is and what He has done and to affirm Him as our own Savior and Master. And to exhort Christians by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul now does, starting in verse 10, is to base those exhortations completely on that same Worldview-defining affirmation of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Why does all that matter? <laughs> well, we live in a world that, that insists that real authority belongs only to the individual. The world declares, in effect, I'll only let you tell me what to do if I happen to agree that it's right. And you certainly don't get to tell me what's right. That's for me to determine. <laughs> for a great many of the people who are all around us, any notion that someone would insist that there's an absolute, always true truth to which all human beings are going to be held accountable by the one and only true God <laughs> is seen as an intolerable assault on their personal autonomy, their personal self-determination. But the one who called and commissioned Paul to write this letter declares that that is exactly what he demands of mankind. That very submission. Until God turns the hearts of lost men, women, and children to faith in His Son, we don't expect them to submit to Christ's perfect lordship over them, even though they're all commanded to submit to Him. But, beloved, this letter is not written to the lost. It's written to the found. For us whose hearts God has turned to faith in Jesus Christ, for us who are His holy ones by His gracious calling, for us upon whom He has already lavished the unfathomable, and eternal riches of Christ, the expectation that we will humbly submit to every exhortation, rebuke, and instruction that He sets before us should be the ultimate no-brainer. The believer's response when we hear from a man as tested and proven in his faithfulness to Christ as the Apostle Paul that he's exhorting us By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that response must be that we stop what we're doing, we push aside every other thought or concern, and we listen with readiness to act on what we're about to hear. And brothers and sisters, the very first exhortation that we receive through Paul in this letter is a forceful command to put away all division from the church of Jesus Christ that shouldn't surprise us in Ephesians the call to unity is is the heart and soul of walking in a manner worthy of our high calling in Jesus the first and foremost exhortation in Ephesians after Paul calls us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling is to be diligent to guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All of the many one another commands that follow that imperative are outworkings of that call to unity. Paul's threefold exhortation here in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, is that you all agree that there be no divisions among you and that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. That you all agree. On what? (laughs) Well, on everything that matters to God. The last part of that threefold exhortation is that you be made complete or mature in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, that, that word judgment raises an intriguing issue. The same word occurs two more times in this same letter, both times in chapter 7. And in both cases, it refers to Paul's own personal judgment regarding matters on which God has not clearly revealed His specific will. Here in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is saying that God intends for us in His church to be so like-minded that we essentially agree even on matters about which God has not given a clear command or prohibition. (laughs) And that that really got my attention as I was studying this passage and pondering it. Because I've said countless times before that God does not expect us to agree on non-essentials, on doctrines that aren't clearly required by Scripture, or behaviors that aren't clearly commanded or forbidden by Scripture, I've said that to expect such a granular level, detailed level of agreement would put too much of a burden on the church. It wears us out, it makes us legalists, and it actually divides us. Now, I stick with that assertion, but this passage has made me adjust my understanding of how it plays out. Let me explain. How can we, in the body of Christ, reach the point where we have the same judgment, even on matters in which God has not clearly given us instruction or command? I believe the answer becomes clear when we simply acknowledge the goal that Paul is setting before us here. And that goal is an undivided church. Our agreement on all matters must ensure that we are never divided over non-essential matters think of it like this for a moment what if you were so devoted to unity in the body of Christ that any disagreement you have with a brother or sister in Christ over something that isn't clearly required in God's Word would never gain enough traction with you to create a division between you and that brother or sister if something doesn't really affect my well-being or yours, I can easily agree to disagree with you about it, and we can get on with the business of the things that actually matter to God, and therefore to us. My agreement with you in that case is to not allow that non-essential disagreement enough importance to divide us. Because if God has not been clear about it, it is not worthy to receive such importance. That's the agreement that counts, beloved. <laughs> Not that we reach a robotic level of uniformity in every detail of life, but that we agree on the things that actually matter and that we aren't threatened or divided by any lesser thing. That requires commitment on your part and mine. It's hard work. Which is why in Ephesians 4, verse 3, Paul commands us to be diligent, to work hard to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, the unity that God created in His church. The more mature that we all become in our knowledge of God's Word and in our personal, intimate knowledge of God Himself, the more We who have already been made one in Christ will think and speak and act alike in everything that really matters to us, because those will be the things that really matter to God. But the Corinthian saints definitely weren't there yet, and beloved, neither are we. In verses 11 and 12, Paul exposes the first of many failures of this local flock of God's sheep in the city of Corinth that he is going to address in these two letters. By this point, Paul has come to learn, apparently, from some saints in Corinth that that were meeting in the household of a, a woman named Chloe, that quarrels had arisen among the Corinthian believers. In verse 12, Paul gets more specific about the nature of those quarrels. I'll read it again. He says, Now I mean this that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and I of Christ. The Corinthians were choosing up sides based on allegiances to men. The most predictable thing about allegiances to men is that they exalt men instead of God. <laughs> And when you pull back the curtain on those man-centered allegiances, the real focus of the exaltation is self. It's, it's, the, it's the person make, who's making the claim of allegiance is really exalting himself. Now, granted, the man that some of these Corinthian saints hung their hats on was Christ. Paul says, some say, I am of Christ. That should be a good thing, right? But based on the nature of Paul's indictment here, I suspect that even the insistence by some of these saints that their only allegiance was to Christ was for self-exalting reasons rather than for Christ-exalting reasons. Something like this. If you were following Jesus like I am, you wouldn't be listening to Paul. You'd be over here with the Jesus people. Verse 13 is vitally important. In that verse, Paul presents three short and very clarifying questions. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The answer to all three questions is an emphatic no. Christ has not been divided. Paul was not crucified for us, and we were not baptized in the name of Paul. Let's take the questions one at a time. Has Christ been divided? In Ephesians chapter 2, the same Apostle Paul declared that as part of the unfathomable riches of Christ, that God has showered upon every believer in Christ, We have all been made one new man in Christ. Whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free man, we are all now one. Every dividing wall that existed between us has been destroyed by Christ. Christ has created a miraculous unity, oneness in His church. We can't create that unity and we can't undo that unity because it is God's doing. What God calls us to do through Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 is to cherish and to guard that unity, to be diligent, to keep watch over the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What we're really to keep watch over is our own hearts so that we don't work at cross purposes with God regarding that unity that He created. In other words, We are to continually treat that God-created unity as a precious treasure that must not be messed with in any way. So, no, no, Christ has not been divided even when we behave as if He has. The divisions that we cause or allow in the community of of the people of God are a negation of Of the reality of our oneness in Christ. They don't change that reality, they deny that reality. Now this all ties together with the marvelous affirmation and assurance that Paul proclaimed to the Corinthian saints in the opening verses of this letter. The many sins that were plaguing the Corinthian church that get addressed in these two letters could never change their calling, their identity, their righteous standing in the eyes of God or their eternal destiny because those are all God's doing, not theirs. Nothing that they would ever do could ever change the promise of God to them that He will, quote, confirm them to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's chapter 1, verse 8. But every sin that we who have been made children of God commit during our mortal lives (laughs) is a negation, a denial of that calling, that identity, that standing, and that destiny. It doesn't change any of those things. Our sin doesn't change any of those realities. Our sin denies those realities. Every sin that we commit treats the grace of God as common, rather than precious. In the same way, every division that we cause or allow in the body of Christ is a denial of the untouchable unity that God has already brought into being in His church. Those petty divisions hide the lampstand of the church under a bushel and declare to this world that's full of petty divisions that we're really no different than they are. When the reality is that by God's doing alone, we are radically different than they are. What's at stake here, beloved, is the word of the cross that we bear to this world. We will either adorn that glorious message of life by cherishing and guarding the oneness that God has created, or we will obscure and, at worst, deny that life-giving message by biting and devouring one another over foolish and petty things that are altogether unworthy of such an impact on our witness to the world. In the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed to His Father, just hours or perhaps minutes before He was arrested, Jesus prayed, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in Me through their word. That's us. (laughs) So that they may all be one, even as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. And then he says a second time, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. According to those words of, of, our, of our Lord, how will the world know that He's the real thing? How will the world know that He is the Messiah and King and God sent from heaven to earth to be the Savior of sinners? They will know when they see the unity that he is created in his church how important is it to our mission in this world that we guard and cherish that oneness it is mission critical beloved it is mission critical How will the world know that we are true disciples of the Son of God? John 13, 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Brothers and sisters, if you and I want to be used by God to escort lost sinners out of the darkness and into the marvelous light of everlasting relationship with God, the single most important thing that we will ever do in this world that's filled with enmity and division is to treasure and to guard the oneness that God has created in the body of Christ. I pray with all my heart that I will never care so much about who you voted for or whether you are voted at all that I will allow it to create any friction between you and me. I pray that that I will never argue with any of you about whether letting your kids go trick-or-treating is good or evil, because that's not worthy of messing with our witness in the world. I pray that I will never be so opinionated about whether wearing masks and social distancing is wise or foolish, that I would allow such such a trivial and temporary matter to make either of us less delighted to work together with each other to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. If I am more willing to offend my fellow saints with my zeal over such temporary matters then I am willing to stun the world with our unity in Christ. Then I need God to take me to the woodshed and sort me out. What I want, what I pray with all my heart that God will make true of of this vessel, is that I'll be so constantly amazed that he has made you my brothers and sisters for all eternity in Christ, that I can't, can't possibly allow anything to come between you and me. The resounding answer to Paul's first question in verse 13, has Christ been divided, is that that cannot and will not ever happen. Let's delight in that reality, beloved. I'm going to consider the other two questions in verse 13 together, because Paul ties them together inextricably in this passage. Those questions are, Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Immediately after presenting those two questions, Paul spends the next three verses making very sure that no one will ever call him Paul the Baptist. Instead, he makes a really large point out of how very few people he ever baptized. In fact, he can only come up with two individuals and one household. Crispus, Gaius, and the household of Stephanus. That's it. Paul traveled all over the Roman Empire, planting and nurturing churches in dozens of communities over many years. But he can only remember three instances in which he baptized anybody. And he gives us two reasons why. First, in verse 15, he says, So that no man should say that you were baptized in my name. And then in verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Paul's not saying that the ceremony of physical baptism is unimportant. Not at all. He's saying that the point of that ceremony has absolutely nothing to do with the person doing the dunking. (laughs) The saints in Corinth were forming foolish little cliques that were needlessly separating one group of Christians from another. And one of the criteria that was determining which clique a given Christian belonged to was which man had baptized him or her. What was wrong with that? How about the fact that it's utterly and completely pointless? <laughs> doesn't matter who baptized you. If you say, I got I to dance with the one that dunked me, God says, doesn't matter who dunked you. What matters is in whose name you were baptized. In whose name. And that name is the same name that Paul has been obsessively focused on since the first verse of this letter. First verse of this letter. The name of our Lord, our Lord, not my Lord, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Why does Paul even bother to entertain this question of who was baptized by whom? Because it's, it's what we love to call a teachable moment. <laughs> and the teaching that he drives home here is the unbreakable connection between baptism and the cross of Christ. The three questions that he posed there in verse 13. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The implied answer to the second and third questions, which is no, supplies the clear answer to the first question. No, Paul was not crucified for you. Jesus was. And no, you were not baptized in the name of Paul. You were baptized in the name of Jesus. So, no. Christ is not divided by your ridiculous factions. Because the entire basis of those factions is that you have taken the precious truths that are true in Christ alone, and you've treated them as if they're somehow dependent on mere men. The real baptism that's pictured through the ceremony of baptism is all about the cross of Christ. According to what we actually know from God's Word, How many followers of Jesus did Jesus baptize during his first advent? The answer is none of them and all of them. If we're talking about the outward ceremony, none of them. There's no record of Jesus physically baptizing anybody. If we're talking about the inward reality to which the ceremony of baptism points, Jesus and only Jesus baptized every believer in Christ in every generation of his church. Three times in John chapter 1, John the Baptist says that the baptism that God had commissioned him to perform was baptism, quote, in water. That's John 1:26. 131 and 133. That's chapter 1, verse 26, 31, and 33. But in, in verses 32 to 33, after seeing Jesus, John says, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon Him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And then John says, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The baptism of John was a symbol of the cleansing that God's Word promised to those who come to God in humble contrition turning from their sinful rebellion against God back to God. Psalm 51 is a great declaration of that cleansing, that renewal of relationship and fellowship that God grants to those who come to Him in humble, contrite repentance. But Psalm 51 does not reveal the basis upon which that promised cleansing comes to those who turn to God. Christ is that basis. The baptism of John, just like the proclamation of John, pointed forward to the one who makes that promised cleansing a reality for all who trust in him alone. John's baptism pointed to the one who is the very cause of our redemption and restoration to the living God, the one who baptizes not merely in water, but in the indwelling Holy Spirit. What's at issue here, beloved, is the word of the cross. Baptism is about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, and what that completed work of Christ has accomplished for everyone who trusts, not in men, but in Jesus alone. Physical baptism doesn't seal your connection with the person who performed the ceremony. It proclaims your personal participation in the death and resurrection of the one in whose name you were baptized. That's what Paul declares in Romans chapter 6. He says that when a person comes to faith in Jesus, that person is baptized into Christ identified with Christ, both in the likeness of His death and in the likeness of His resurrection from the dead. The ceremony of baptism proclaims to the world that God has so pervasively united us with Christ that it is as if we had been there when Jesus was crucified and and resurrected. Not merely with Him, but in Him. Romans 6, verse 11 is the first command in that chapter. It says, therefore, in other words, because you have died with Christ and you have been raised with Him to newness of life, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. That means count it as true of yourselves that you are dead to sin and alive to God. Why? Because it's true. Because it's true for all who have trusted in Christ. The ceremony of baptism doesn't create, again, a special connection between me and the one who dunked me. It proclaims my identification with Christ alone. Point made. All right. The last thing I want to deal with is what Paul says in the second half of verse 17. And that is it's not the messenger, it's the message that matters. The last verse of this passage points out this one additional piece of what was causing factions in the church of Corinth, and it's exceedingly important that we pay attention to this verse. Paul says, here's the whole verse, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then listen, Not in cleverness of speech that the cross of Christ should not be made void. That verse sets the stage for what Paul is going to say in the rest of chapter 1 and in much of chapters 2 and 3. So we're going to see this point again. The second point of division among the saints in Corinth was the eloquence of the teachers that had proclaimed the word of the cross to them. Now, the problem here was, is not that one of those teachers was proclaiming a different message than the other. Paul, Peter, Apollos, and Jesus had not preached four different Gospels. The schisms in in Corinth were not over different teachings. They were over which teacher had the best skills. (laughs) This was a common hang-up in the Roman culture, which had arisen through the conquest of Greece. Greece had been a culture driven by the philosophical prowess of mere men. Acts 17, verse 21, sums up the spirit of of the, the Greek culture very well. When Paul preached in the Areopagus in the city of Athens, which was the capital of Greece, he was preaching to people who, quote, used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. I love that. Athens was home base for the TED Talks of the New Testament era. (laughs) And and don't get me wrong, there there are a lot of good TED Talks. (laughs) But the listeners cared far less about the content than about the entertainment value. The last thing that they wanted to hear was that there is one thing that is preeminently and absolutely true that renders the most elegant philosophies of men as nothing but utter foolishness but that's exactly that's exactly what they got from Paul (laughs) what they didn't get from Paul was a grand performance Paul says in here in in the 1 Corinthians 117 that he did not preach the gospel throughout the Roman empire quote in cleverness of speech why didn't he that the cross of Christ should not be made void the magnificent obsession of the apostle Paul was to draw the the attention and affection Of both sinners and Saints to Jesus never to himself note that he does not say I didn't come to you in cleverness of speech because I'm not capable of cleverness of speech (laughs) I've heard others say and and I'm afraid I've said more than once myself that Paul must not have been a very skillful orator I realize now that that very badly misses the point Paul might have been capable of the most eloquent speeches this world has ever heard. He is a fabulously eloquent writer. But Paul purposed not to draw attention to himself when he was among these, these lost people and then these saints who came to faith in Christ in order that the cross of Christ would not be made void. It's exactly what he's going to say again at the beginning of chapter 2 <laughs> it was said of Jonathan Edwards that he read his sermons in a monotone through thick coke bottle bottomed glasses he did so not because he wasn't capable of eloquent or persuasive speech but because he was absolutely devoted to making Christ the object of every congregation's attention and affection, and not himself. I wonder if Jonathan Edwards or the Apostle Paul would ever get past first base with a pastoral search committee in 21st century America. Beloved, we live in an unprecedented age in which every Christian with broadband internet can pull up the very most captivating and eloquent preachers known to mankind anytime they want to. I want to tread carefully here, but I believe I'd be remiss if I didn't make this point pretty directly. It is not a good trend when many Christians are skipping the teaching that God has provided in their own local bodies because the man in their pulpit isn't as captivating a speaker as a bunch of other men that they can listen to with their podcast app. My concern here is for the vitality of the Church of Jesus Christ, not for the reputation of any pastor or teacher or writer, including myself. I don't expect these messages to get much circulation, if any, outside our little extended family at Community Bible Chapel. But whoever is watching or hearing this message, wherever you you find yourself in this world at any point in your life, if God sets before you a teacher who directs your mind and affections to our glorious Savior and Master, through the faithful and diligent proclamation of His living and active Word, you need to know that you've been handed a blessing that sets you apart from much of humanity, even if that man is not particularly eloquent in his presentation. See, the blessing is not found in the messenger, but in the message, and more specifically in the one to whom the message points. The message that every preacher worth his salt must be proclaiming is the word of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word that God has already given to His church. By all means, listen to as many faithful preachers as you have time to hear. That's way more profitable than how many Christians spend a lot of their time I sometimes listen to four or five sermons in a week, and I I often read the commentaries of several faithful writers for each passage that I'm studying. Ron has, has been very helpful to me in choosing good commentaries. I learn a lot through those faithful men, but beloved, don't ever let it be about the messenger. I mustn't. Let it be about the messenger and neither must you. Make sure, make sure, it's about the word of the cross. The word of the cross is the wisdom of God and the power of God given to the people of God in every generation of Christ's church. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask you to humble every one of us to cause us to decisively set aside anything that would separate us from any brother or sister in Christ. Teach us to cherish and guard our oneness with a fierce resolve by the power of the same Spirit who has forever made us one in our Lord Jesus Christ. May the people all around us see the miracle of that oneness and by it come to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior of their souls. We ask this in His precious name. Amen.